0: Continuing our series, in the book of Jonah, tonight, chapter 3, The Preaching Prophet, or The World's Greatest Revival and the World's Worst Evangelist. Someone has entitled Jonah chapter 3, The Gospel of the Second Chance. And that's good if you know what it means. There is no second chance for salvation. The scripture says that it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. You see, there's a tremendous urgency to the gospel. That's why the Word of God says now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Any individual only has a little slice in time to make the most important decision in their life. Where they plan to spend their eternity. But there is a second chance as far as service is concerned. And that's why we read, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Oh, that's a great encouragement to my heart. We could multiply illustrations tonight. Let me cite just three. Exhibit A, David. May I remind you that David wrote Psalms 23, 32, and 51. Three of the Psalms for which he is most famous his sin with Bathsheba after his adultery and his murder he is referred to as the man after God's own heart you ever ask yourself why that's true? Sometimes you need to reread the story of Nathan's confrontation of David. Tells him that intriguing story and says, What should this man do? And immediately David comes out and says, Kill him. And the prophet whips around and says, Thou art the man. Now the interesting thing is, David never said, who? me? That's why he was the man after God's own heart. Or take the case of Peter. May I remind you that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost to thousands, and later wrote first and second Peter, two of the most encouraging books in the New Testament, after he denied his Lord three times and said, I don't even know the man you're talking about. You see, prior to that event, our Lord had said to Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not. Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. That's an interesting analogy. In order that the chaff might go to God, and he might retain the we. and then he adds this interesting statement but when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren and that's what first and second peter are all about they are men who fail who denied the savior who is now equipping the saints strengthening the brethren. And by the way, everything you stereotype Peter for is exactly the opposite of what 1 and Peter and 2 Peter teach. Or Exhibit C. John Mark. John Mark flushed out of the ministry. On the first missionary journey when they got to the rough terrain, in southern Asia, he went home. I am inclined to believe that John Mark was a mother's boy. He was tied to his mother's apron string. His father had died and his mother had reared him, and that's a sticky problem for any woman to pull off. Because so frequently she tries to be a father, and that's lethal. Lethal. But for whatever reason, he went home. And when they came to go on the second missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's take John Mark. And Paul said, no way, Jose. (laughs) And they had quite a disagreement. And by the way, don't water that down. It's stronger in the Greek text. They split. And isn't it interesting that Barnabas was willing to split with Paul when he was the instrument by which Paul got into the church in the first place. And he picks up Barnabas. I mean, John, Mark, and they go on a separate journey. But isn't it interesting that at the end of Paul's life, the apostle admits, bring John, Mark for he's profitable to me for ministry. My friend, how in the world did he get profitable? Well, it wasn't through Paul. It was through Brother B. The man with the oily disposition was always building into the life of people. And may I remind you that when the Holy Spirit wants to pick up an instrument to paint the portrait of the unfailing servant, Jesus Christ. He picks John Mark, the failing servant, to pen that book. Now I want to make something very clear. The Word of God is transparent. God will forgive any sin. But that's no guarantee that one will escape the consequences of his sin. See, Moses' sin, God told him to strike the rock once, and he blew his cool and struck it twice. And God forgave him, but he never got into the land as a consequence of that sin. See, Abraham had his wife, Sarah, suggest to him, look, we got to help God out in getting the seed off the ground. So he went into Hagar, and that produced an Ishmael. And God forgave Abraham. But all of the conflict over in Palestine is the result of that bummer decision. And the consequences are with us to this day. So I spend a lot of time with young people. And they say, Hey, you know, Dad, don't don't hang that trip on me. You know, I am free. Sure you're free. And I love to explain this in a building in which we're in the 10th story or above. It's much more graphic. (laughs) I say, certainly you're free, my friend. You're free to jump out the window. Be my guest. But once you're out, you're no longer free. You are a slave to a law called the law of gravitation that's going to dash you in pieces on the concrete below." Nice as says, well, I don't like that law. <laughs> well, my friend, that is absolutely the most insensitive law in the book. It couldn't care less what you think. It just functions guy says, why? I don't understand that law. My friend, when you hit the ground, you'll have full comprehension. (laughs) You see, you are free to make your choices, but you are not free to escape the consequences. And that verse which Jim quoted, whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. I remind you was spoken to believers. Oh, but I think I hear somebody out there say, Don't you know that poem? The bird with the broken wing will never fly as high again. Yeah, I know that poem. It's a lovely poem. It's abominable theology. It may function in the natural realm, but in the supernatural realm there is a different dynamic. Is there anybody in this outfit that identifies with what I'm talking about? Is there anybody who at one time in your Christian experience was convinced that you had had the course? You blew it. God couldn't use you anymore. It's my judgment that the Christian community is covered with people who are under guilt, false guilt, a mile high, and have never learned the truth of Jonah chapter 3, and that is God always starts with you precisely where you are. Excuse me, we have an emergency in Big Horn? We need a Dr. Youngblood, or a Youngman? Dr. Bird? Yes, please. Dr. Youngblood, right away. He's on his way. Hmm. Why don't we just stop and have a word of prayer? Father, it's so wonderful to have a person such as you to whom we may come. And we thank you that you use human instrumentalities. So we pray, our Father, that you will work through your servant and that you will accomplish your purpose. We do not know the details, but we thank you that you are fully appraised and that you are thoroughly adequate to do exceeding abundantly above what we ask or think and as a group of your children we agree together in faith trusting you for your will in Christ's name amen it was robert browning who said image the whole and execute the part So I'd like to give you three words by which to summarize Jonah chapter 3. By the way, many of you have shared with me some facets of your Bible teaching ministry. And I'm so encouraged. I hope you covet the art of simplicity. You remember our Lord said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. So you better get the cookies on the lower show. (laughs) I go to so many conferences now and then, you know, and some guy is really plowing deep and we'll walk out and some layman will say, my, that was deep. Yeah, it really was. It was about 12 feet under for me. How far was it for you? And here I am as a professional and I don't have a clue as to what the guy's saying. But you see we have that crazy idea if it's foggy it must be brilliant. <laughs> but you know if I can understand it then there must be something not too profound about it. So I would encourage you to develop the art of simplicity. And when you're teaching the word of God make it as simple as it is humanly possible for you to do. There are three words that to me ramp up the three sections of Jonah chapter 3. Please note that each of these paragraphs begins with a very crucial connective that tells the story. Now, so, and then. In verses 1 and 2, you have the recommission. In verses 3 and 4, you have Jonah's response. And in verses 5 through 10, you have the results of the message that he proclaimed. Jonah chapter 3, I like to refer to as the chapter of two cries. First you have Jonah's cry of impending judgment. And then you have the Ninevites' cry of immediate repentance. And mind you, it was just an eight-word sermon. I suspect some of you would like to hear an eight-word sermon. (laughs) Particularly if it were as powerful as this. Let's take just a moment to review. Bear in mind that the book of Jonah breaks open into two major parts. You have the first commission in chapters 1 and 2. You have the second commission or the recommission in chapters 3 and 4. First commission begins with disobedience and it ends with obedience. The second commission begins with obedience and it ends with disobedience. And if you can simply keep that in your mind, you're going to have a good working grasp of this profound book. Now let's examine the recommission in verses 1 and 2. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it, the proclamation which I am going to tell you. Now, if you examine this commission carefully and compare it with what you have in chapter 1 and verse 3, you will see that it is largely identical. It's only slightly revised, not quite as intimate, a little more brusque, and our Lord here doesn't explain it. He just gives it. But the expression that intrigues me is the statement, the proclamation, I am going to tell you. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And my friend, that's the chief failure of the church today. A failure to tell what God has spoken. We are substituting the word of men for the word of God. And that's why Paul was so jealous with his young son in the faith to say, Timothy, preach the word. What else is there to preach? I was teaching a class of freshman students in a course in how to study the Bible. The men were sharing with the group, the things they had discovered in the passage. And it was a young man who was visiting the class, sitting up near the front. And all during the time, the guy's eyes were just filled with tears. And after the class, he came up and said to me, you know, is every class like this? I said, as a matter of fact, most of them are better. He said, I can't believe it. And then he told me that he was a student in a liberal seminary. And he said, I've been there for two years, and I learned more about the Word of God in one hour in this class than I've learned in two years in seminary. Many of you have shared with me the delightful privilege that you have of being in a church where the Word of God is preached and taught. I hope you don't take that for granted. That's an indescribable privilege. We are living in a generation in which there is a famine of the Word of God. And if you are in a church where the pastor is preaching the Word, I hope you're not on his back, but rather on his team. I hope whenever you get an opportunity, you pour into that man's ears how delighted you are to be the privilege, the recipient of a faithful teaching ministry. We had a lawyer in the city of Fort Worth who shared something with me not too long ago. They had their first child. And as they were looking down in the crib, he said to his wife, you know, honey, this is a sobering responsibility. He said, and I'm sure we're going to take care of this child's needs educationally and physically and every other way. But what are we going to do for this kid spiritually? So they decided They ought to go to church. He went to a liberal church and they would listen and listen and finally thought, maybe I'll take some notes. So he'd take some notes and he'd compare what he got this week with what he got last week. And this contradicted what happened last week. And finally, he got into a little Bible class that was started by a group of people in the city of Fort Worth. And man, he got so turned on. And the first thing that happened was he came to faith. And a few days later, his wife came to faith. And, of course, he was so excited, and he said to the leader, Man, I can hardly wait to tell my pastor. (laughs) So the guy felt, you know, why shelter it? So he goes to tell this liberal pastor that he and his wife have just been saved. And for one hour and 15 minutes... This pastor reamed him out. And by the time that guy walked out of that church, he had a full course on the apostasy. He knew more than I could give him if I talked to him for the next 20 hours. And as he said to me, man, I went to the church looking for bread and I got a stone. This is the tragedy. You see, Jonah learned that he did not have to devise his message. Just declare it. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. I can tell that most of you have your devotions in that book periodically. But your Bible automatically opens to that point. So you'll have no trouble finding it. And turn to Ezekiel chapter 2 for just a moment. I want to begin reading at verse 7. God says to the prophet, but you shall speak my words to them. Now notice, whether they listen or not, you see, it's not the response of the audience that's the prophet's concern. It's the fulfillment of his responsibility, for they are rebellious you know, my friends, it's very easy. I hope you pray for those of us who are in the ministry. I hope you pray for yourself in your ministry. Because it's very easy in a Bible study to become a politician. See, a politician is often the guy you ask, Hey, are you for this or against it? Oh, well, you know, some of my friends are for it, and some of my friends are against it, and I'm for my friends. See, this is the kind of person who comes out with both feet firmly planted in (laughs) midair. And so God says to Ezekiel, verse 8, Now you, son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I'm giving to you. There's a basic principle of ministry, and that's why some of you are here this week. And that is God wants to minister to you before He can minister through you. And the prof- and God says to the prophet, make sure you've got a spiritually sensitized heart that's teachable and responsive to the truth of God. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Then He said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat the scroll and go speak. To the house of Israel. You see, unless God speaks to you, my friend, you have nothing to say to your generation. So I opened my mouth and He fed me the scroll and He said to me, Son of man, feed your stomach, fill your body with the scroll which I am giving you. Then I ate it and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Let me give you a taste test. Is the Word of God sweet in your mouth? Or has it gone sour? very easy for the living truth of God to grow sour in your mouth. Man, there have been times when I've ministered the Word of God, I've had to go out and get down on my knees and confess my sin. See, it's very easy to become professional. Man, I know a lot of the stuff like I know the back of my hand. And I've delivered this a hundred times. So easy for it to get stale. And you become, you know, just a person who gives answers without any of the impact of the experience in your own life. See, my friends, God has not promised to bless my word. Not even my word about His word. The only thing He's promised to bless is His word. Have you discovered how alive it is? That's the most exciting thing about working with pagans. Just exposing them to the Word of God. Just to watch it come alive. And goes, hey! Verses 3 and 4. Now, let's look at the response. Notice this paragraph begins with the intriguing word, so. You turn back to chapter 1 and verse 3 again. Mark the contrast. There's all the difference in the world in Jonah's response. You see, his disobedience is now transformed to obedience. Chapter 1, he was running away from God. Chapter 2, he's running back to God. Chapter 3, he's running with God. He's saying, here am I, Lord, send me. No argument, no hesitation. He paid the price of disobedience and he's not about to go that route again. Now, notice that the text says, So Jonah rose, went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. What does the expression a three days walk? This is a very difficult expression, and we cannot determine for sure. Let me give you my own interpretation of this. Will you bear in mind that Nineveh was the capital of the ancient empire of Assyria. And Nineveh was both a city and a complex of city. Around the main city was a cluster of four cities. Actually, the city itself was not that large. One writer says, the walls surrounding the city were about eight miles in circumference and packed into that relatively small space where 175,000 people. You know, it always intrigues me, traveling around the world, no matter where you go, you get the same phenomenon. Large areas of real estate and everybody packed into a city. Almost on top of each other. You ever been to New York? Sometime you need to take a walk down some of the east side of New York, and realize that 25 to 30 percent of those people have never once in their life been off that block. And they're all packed in there, one on top of another. And you come out to some of these plains and some of these remote areas, and it's difficult to believe that wherever you get people, they immediately congregate in these large So you had Nineveh and Greater Nineveh, something comparable to a modern metroplex. Now the complex that is including these four satellite cities was about 60 miles in diameter and covered the same space as the city of London today. There were over a million people in that complex of city. Bear in mind that in the ancient world, a day's journey was 20 miles. So if that diameter was 60 miles, it's possible he was moving right through the heart of it and got 20 miles into it. The ancient Near Eastern world, they would walk 10 miles in the morning Ten miles in the late afternoon, never during the middle of the day. Now look at verse 4. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. You get the picture? Here he is clothed in his robes of the Hebrew prophet his face marked by his recent experience in the fish he must have been something of a phenomenon little clusters of people would grab around him sometimes perhaps larger groups and he delivered this message over and over again maybe he stopped and preached a message of length of which this is merely the summation at any rate he was brief and terrifying in his message And the results are given in verses 5 through 10. you ever ask the question, what can one person do in a city? Here's the answer. Verse 5, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, not Jonah, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Sackcloth was a rough, scratchy cloth, somewhat like burlap. And the fast and the sackcloth were both symbols of penitence, of repentance. For instance, suppose a woman in the ancient world were to lose her husband. Her first responsibility would be to go out in the street before all of her neighbors, take a huge pan full of that very fine dust, which characterizes the Near East, take something comparable to a powder puff, and bat that dust and then hit it on the top of her head till ultimately she was totally covered with this fine dust. And then all of her neighbors would know their responsibility was to come out and share in her grief at least for a limited period of time till the professional mourners could be brought in to conduct the funeral. Now, you read a verse like this and people have often said, man, that's incredible. How in the world do you explain this? A major city believes in God. They took the message of Jonah, they accepted it, and they acted on it. Starting at the king and coming on down. Well, my friend, I assure you, this is a miracle. In fact, in my judgment, it is the greatest miracle of the book. And may I remind you, salvation always is. Now, imagine reporting this to the Nav log. You know, here's some couple, Mr. and Mrs. Gumball, who we'll come to the Kansas conference and they go back home to the Church of the Immaculate Perception over there in Sugar Creek, Kansas. And they get the whole city together, all 47 of them. And they share the bridge and all 47 of them trust Christ. And they call up Dick and say, Hey, Dick, come on up. Carry on a follow-up program. We're moving on to the next town. It's exactly what happened here. And I've had people say, Man, that's humanly impossible. How can you get a man who spoke a foreign language entering the capital city and by one simple proclamation have a whole city to repent? My friend, the only explanation is that this was humanly impossible. Now, I want you to turn to a passage of Scripture that you probably have wrestled with. It's found in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. This is the story of the rich young ruler. Jesus said to him in verse 21, If you wish to be complete, Go and sell your possessions, give to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And that blew his computer. For when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieved. For he was one who owned much property. It's not simply the fact that he had a lot of property. It's the fact that a lot of property had him. So Jesus turns to His disciples and said, Truly I say to you, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Do you ever have anybody explain that passage to you? Tell you about that little gate over there? Where when you get a camel all loaded down, you got it? put him down on his knees, take all of the gear off, push him, squeeze him through the gate, and when you get on the other side, bring all of your gear in, load it back on, and you can go. That's a lovely explanation. But what do you do when you come to Luke and he uses a surgical needle? Well, I mentioned that to a group. And a scientist came up afterwards and he said, that's no problem. He said, if I had that dilemma, I just take the camel and I dissolve him in sulfuric acid (laughs) and I take a syringe and squirt him (laughs) through. You know, it's amazing the extent to which people will go to try to explain scripture. My friend, if you didn't get the point, the disciples did, at least on this occasion. Because they said, verse 25, when they heard this, they were astonished and said, then, who can be saved? See, this is impossible. And looking upon them, Jesus said to them, with men this is impossible. But with God all things are possible including the salvation of a rich man. You see my friends, riches are no barrier to God, but they are a tremendous barrier to a person to keep him from coming. And I want to share something with you. I want you to listen very, very carefully. Because many of you people have come to faith in the last 5, 10, maybe 15 years at most. And a lot of you have small children who have grown up in your home and some of them have trusted Christ when they were four or six or eight. And before long, they're going to be teenagers and they're going out to hear testimony meetings where some guy gets up to tell how Jesus delivered him from drugs. And another guy gets up and tells how they were shacking up with all of the girls out on the campus. And they came to Christ and they got straightened away. And this poor kid sits there and think, you know, good night. You know, was I saved? i love to hear my wife give her testimony. You know why? There isn't one dramatic element in the whole testimony. Very simple home in Philadelphia. Her parents came to Christ and in a simple way tried to live the Christian life and explain it to her, and she came to faith, and she hasn't gone to bed with anybody else, and she didn't live a life of sin, and she didn't spend 20 years out in the cesspool, and then come with a delicious testimony. You see, you almost get the impression that if you really want to have an impact, what you need to do is to go out and bump a couple guys off, and then come back and repent. And after you do your time in a pen, we'll put you on the circuit. (laughs) There's tremendous testimony what Jesus did. Ladies and gentlemen, hear me. It takes no less of the grace of God to save your four-year-old than it does to save that guy on Chicago's State Street who's a bum in sin and who by His grace comes to Christ. The difference is your kid's got his whole life to live for Jesus Christ. And this guy's burned out and has just a little bit to give to the Savior. See, in the Christian community, we got kids who are shot through with inferiority feelings because they don't have this dramatic testimony. What the Word of God teaches you is that your salvation may not be dramatic, but it's just as divine. And that's what happened in the city of Nineveh. The world's greatest revival on record. Look at the climax in verse 10. Man, when God saw their deeds, and notice back in verse 8, both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. Man, even the animals repented. Sure wish some animals in my community would repent. And let men call on God earnestly. Now notice that each may turn from his wicked way. That's the personal sin. And from the violence, that's the national sin of Assyria. And when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He he had declared He would bring upon them and He did not do it. How do you understand this expression? God have a twang of conscience? Feel that He somehow had goofed? Spoke too rapidly? No, as we saw in our last study, repentance means to change the mind. But when repentance is ascribed to God, it's an explanation in human terminology of what happened. See, God has purposed all things, and He doesn't change His mind. He's not capricious. He is not fickle. But but so that we will understand, He uses what we call phenomenal language. That's the language of observation, the language of experience. Here's a boy riding a bicycle down a road and there's a tremendously fierce wind in his face and he's pumping with everything he's got. And suddenly he turns his bicycle around to move in the opposite direction. Now it appears that the wind changed. But in reality, he changed. And this is what happened. You see, God is not changing. It's the fact that a group of sinners repented and turned in the opposite direction and experienced the grace of God in their life. The New Testament puts it this way, he that does not believe is condemned already. What does a person need to do to go to hell? Absolutely nothing. But after one receives Christ as his Savior, Paul assures us, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Because all of God's fires of judgment burned out on Jesus Christ at the cross. Ladies and gentlemen, chapter 3 is not so much a revelation of the prophet as it is a revelation of the prophet's God. It's God who is the central figure in this chapter. At the beginning and the end of the chapter, He's pouring out His grace. At the beginning, He's pouring out His grace on His prophet, Jonah. At the end of the chapter, He's pouring out His grace upon the people of Nineveh. And I assure you, He has mercy, not only for His disobedient children but also for the sinner who will put his trust in him. Am I talking to somebody here tonight who has never come to faith, never passed from darkness to marvelous light? And there's a tremendous message in this chapter. God sent Jesus Christ, the just for the unjust, that he might bring you to God. And he says to as many as received him, to them gave he the authority to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. You can go back from this conference, a twice-born individual, born from above, with no condemnation, because you are in Christ. The majority of you have already made that decision. And as I have been praying for this evening session. My great concern is for some of you who may have, at some point in time, felt you've blown it. And somehow you've sort of labored under the idea that you're a second-class citizen. God wanted you to do something, and you didn't do it. You say, well, that's it. I've had the courts. Okay, great news for you tonight i got the most liberating word for you you have heard since you received Christ as your Savior. And that is God wants to start with you right now where you are. And to give you a life of fulfillment. I must confess, as a servant of Jesus Christ, nothing tears me up as much as to meet people who are under this cloud. I just spent some time with a guy, so help me. I am still weeping on the inside. Seventy-two years of age. And when he was about 21, he felt God called him to go to China as a missionary. And he said, God, I'm flat not interested. It was really a very similar testimony to Dick. Because oftentimes when a person makes a decision like this, God comes along, man, he got a scholarship all the way through college, all the way through medical school, the whole shot. And then he said, well, you know, maybe I can go as a medical missionary, which was a very live option to him, he said. But then he got so involved and, you know, for all of that time, till he was 72, he felt he was a second-class citizen in the kingdom of God. You know, my heart breaks. How much time has he got left? I don't know. But as he said to me, I'm just so glad God finally broke through to me at 72. See, there are a lot of you people who are 22 and 32 and 42 who have a good slice of life left. And God wants to start with you tonight where you are. Let's pray. Father, these are very rewarding days for we sense that you have been speaking to us through every session, through our workshops and our discussion groups, through conversations around the table, through times alone out on the trail. And our Father, we thank you that you are so patient with us that you understand us and that you give us a second chance. Were it not, our Father, there is not a man or a woman in this room who would be here tonight. So we thank you for your faithfulness and pray that you will break through in the life and experience of many tonight in a liberating word, offering to them another opportunity to do your will. So thank you for what you're going to do. We trust you expectantly through Christ our Lord. Amen.